And so you can go, uh, David, we can go to the slides for uh, our series in Luke called Savior, wanting to look and, say, uh, and see who Jesus really is. A uh, tiny bit of context before we jump into uh, what is a slightly longer, and I'm going to be honest, quite a, quite a confusing passage for us. Uh, in Luke 19, Jesus uh, decides to uh, donkey nap because he kidnaps, but it's a donkey. So it's a donkey naps a donkey and decides to ride into Jerusalem on that donkey, which seems really strange and really weird until you understand that this, were, this was fulfilling a whole bunch of prophecies that everyone in Jerusalem would have known. So everyone knows what Jesus is claiming to be and to do as he enters into Jerusalem. And then what we have in the rest of 19 and 20 is essentially this massive tug of war for authority. Uh, if you remember, uh, Kenan, a couple of weeks back, was taking us through the various different ways that Jesus' authority is being challenged, and yet he doesn't just rise to the challenge, he doesn't just push back, but he's actually able to assert his authority over those who are challenging him. And uh, just two weeks ago, we had uh, our friend Jared come and speak to us uh, about uh, essentially the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who are doing very long-winded prayers, who are making a big deal out of uh, attending church or looking morally impressive, and, and yet they were themselves oppressing widows, oppressing those who were genuinely following Jesus. And so all of this happens in the same kind of period of time, a day or two, and all of this is happening inside the temple. But as we reach uh, verse 5 of chapter 21, Jesus is actually walking out of the temple. We don't read it in Luke, but we do read it in Matthew's account in Matthew 24. He's actually walking out of the temple, and he's got just a few disciples with him. So it's important to know he's not talking to the crowd. And actually, the way you would understand this text would change if he would still be in the temple uh, challenging the challengers. He's not doing that. He's actually talking to his close followers. And he gives us uh, the following uh, long prophecy. Let's read it together, starting from verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he and my time is at hand. Do not go to them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all of this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to mediate beforehand how to answer, for 
I will give you a mouth and wisdom at which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair on your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. There will be great women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against its people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled." And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all of the trees. As soon as they come out of leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see all these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And the day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell upon the whole earth. But stay awake. At all times, praying that you have the strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. This is really clear. This is really obvious. Of course, everything makes sense. I feel so encouraged to live the Christian life. I've got so many more skills and tricks to be able to live for Jesus. Let's just go home. No need for a sermon. Let's just go, right? Stay sitting down. Hold your horses. And breathe as Jesus' weirdest sayings are put out all in one statement. This is strange, eh? This is weird. Uh, If you are thinking, Jesus, just like 5% unclear, just need you to double back and touch on one or two things, I get it. Spend the whole week doing the same thing, okay? I get it. Uh, What what 
this passage, which is, a, which is a strange passage, what it strikes me as, and I know you'll know this, is like that really old, monotone, like fumbling around professor or lecturer or teacher who's, who's clearly incredibly clever, but just like clever on like a whole different plane to you. And so you're kind of like sitting in that lecture hall and you're looking like these guys. Like, like, what is happening? Like, uh, what is going on? And then he just keeps going on, and he's looking at you like, like you know exactly what's going on. And you're like, hey, hey, hey no, 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 no. I, I haven't got a clue. Like, like, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he rambling? Why is he just going from one place to another, and then back here, and then back there? And it's not like he's talking about, like, astrophysics, or whatever it was that put you to sleep when you were like in a grade seven classroom, right? Like, like it's, it's, it's not like he's talking about unimportant things. Like, Jesus, you're talking about the end of the world. I need you to be clear. <laughs> you know, like, like, give me a date. Give me a time. Tell me when I need to have invented a spaceship or something by. Like, like, like this is not helpful. This is like life. Or, this is more than life or death. This is like the existence of everything. Uh, if I need you to be clear about one thing, it's probably this. So why are you being the guy who put me to sleep in class? Like, like why now? Why are you being so confusing? Well, I've really tried to think, how can I unpack this in a way that would be helpful for us? And I, and I think what I'm going to do is, is something slightly different from normal. I'm going to use a couple of uh, Bible studying techniques that I found really helpful for me when I'm reading the confusing parts of Scripture, okay? And so three points for today. Uh, they're going to come up on the screen. The first one, what did this mean? What did it mean? So Jesus is talking to his disciples outside the temple before the crucifixion. What did it mean to those three or four disciples in that moment? This would be the original meaning for the original audience. What did it mean? Then I'm going to ask, what will it mean? Because it is very clear that there is some talk about the future, some stuff that has not yet happened. So what did it mean? And then we'll ask, what will it mean? What has not yet happened, but we, as well as every believer who's ever read this, have been looking to in the future? What did it mean? What will it mean? And then finally, we'll ask quite briefly, what does it mean? What are you and I meant to be walking out of this room with this sense of this is what Jesus has said to me today to help me walk with him? What did it mean? What will it mean? And then what does it mean? So let's start with what did it mean, okay? And uh, a bit of a story from, from me growing up, uh, which uh, doesn't put me in the best of lights, but I don't think it's going to surprise anyone here, right? Uh, growing up, we lived in a, a city in the, well, next to a city in the UK called Bournemouth. It was on the south coast, which meant uh, that even though it's England and it's like cold, like 24-7, we would go to the beach. In summer, we would go to the beach and we would hang out. And, and I found an incredible amount of joy at destroying everything that my sisters would make in the sand. Okay, let's just have a little picture of these guys. Okay, I, I, I found as the older brother, incredible joy in my sister's pain. 
Like, it was just really fun. I, 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 I would even let them think, like, I'm not going to do it. And so there's a, like a charade of safety in their sandcastles. And, and then I would find, I remember one moment trying to find a way to sneak around them so they wouldn't see it coming. And then it's just like a two-footed tackle, just like a lunging two-footed tackle, sandcastles down. And, and just the, 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 you know, like the face of pain of a younger sibling? Where's Cairo? Cairo, you you know the face of pain from that younger sibling, right? Yeah, you know that. Melo, where are you, my guy? The face of pain, right? It's just there's something. I'm not saying it's holy. I'm not saying it's good. Keep your judgments. Like you've never done anything like this, all right? But I'm I'm just saying, like there was something like narcissistically pleasing about doing this, and and, and it would be the face. It would be the and and I'm like. I think it's because they, they, they've invested something and they've made this sandcastle and it was really beautiful and, and, then, and then it was just destroyed in a moment, all their hard work, gone. And I was like, because of my hard work of sneaking up behind and two foot tackling the, the sandcastle. Okay, now, now just briefly, pause, show of hands, anyone actually surprised about this story? Anyone actually, Mai's like, it's you, Tom, like, of course, like, yeah, exactly. So I was safe to say it because my reputation's already ruined. Absolutely. Okay, so I, I, would, I would do this all the time. But let's be honest, a sandcastle is a sandcastle. Like, like, get a bucket, put some sand in, done. Like, sorted already, right? Okay, now this is the most profound point of the whole sermon. So are you ready? The temple in Jerusalem was not my sister's sandcastle. Yo. Tom, that was deep. That was deep, ne? Yeah, that was deep. That was that was hectic, right? The, the 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 temple in Jerusalem. That is not my sister's sandcastle. Okay, it it it, it can't just be put back up again. Okay, and it wasn't the squabble between two or three siblings at one time, right? This would be the equivalent of someone walking past the Eiffel Tower in Paris or walking past the pyramids of Giza or, uh, you know, going to the, the Great Wall of China or uh, any of these, like, monuments, particularly if the monument holds sacred value and saying, I'm, I'm going to blow this thing up. Like, I'm going to utterly destroy this thing. Now, is Jesus actually saying this? Explicitly, no, he didn't say, I will destroy it. However, he does in other places, and in this text, it's very clear that the kind of forces and powers that are in operation in Luke 21, it's not going to be a kid going up and kicking the thing down. Okay? It's quite obvious what's, what's happening, what's going on in this place. And think about what the temple is. The, the temple is essentially, the best analogy I can give for this is the temple is essentially the sun around the universe of all Jewish culture, all Jewish identity and way of life. Everything revolves around the temple because the temple represents the dwelling place of God himself. Now, he hasn't actually dwelled there for a long time. He departed when the Babylonians and Assyrians came. However, the symbolic value of the, of the, the presence of God in the temple uh, it is literally built in the center of the city. Okay? Your, your daily life, your, your, your spiritual and worshipful rituals would center around the temple. The, the leadership of the temple is the leadership of your life, your entirety. Everything about you as a Jewish person in that moment is centered around here. So what does it mean when, that, when Jesus says that thing's going to get destroyed? Well, what would a first century Jewish person, what would they have heard when Jesus would have said that? 
It's not a building. It's not a sandcastle. It's a massive, massive monument. Every single one of these bricks, although it's painted in gold in this depiction, it is of white marble. Some of the lengths of these bricks will go 13 feet long and wide. It was described as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a massive thing. Inside the temple, every door had to be made out of gold or bronze. Every door frame had to be made out of gold. It was a massive, masterful feat by King Herod Agrippa who put this thing together. And the whole city is based around surrounding this thing. This is the sun. This is the center of the universe for a first century Jew. And Jesus has just come in and said, this thing is going to get torn down. This thing is not going to stand anymore. You see, what's going on here, when these guys are hearing this, when Jesus is saying these things, Jesus has a very practical, immediate thing in mind, and this is what it is. In the first century Jews, they were living in this age of Roman expansion, occupation, and violence. They were living in a world where they would actually regularly see the sign in its nations and kingdoms. In, in verse 20, it's a city being surrounded. And in verse 21, it's the escape, the retreat, uh, the exodus of that city. In verse 24, it's a Gentiles, Romans, coming in and occupying, invading and occupying that city. So what did it mean? Well, a Jewish first century person would have, would have heard this, and this would have had a very precise meaning. They wouldn't have been thinking about the sun and the moon and the stars and the end of days. Not yet. They would have been thinking, oh, that's what happened in 70 AD. That's what happened when eventually the Romans did come, and in the first Roman to Jewish wars, in the middle of that war, uh, the, the soon-to-be emperor Titus would have a five-month siege of Jerusalem. And in the siege are some of the bloodiest and worst atrocities that we would have found in all of recorded history. In this time, you would have had this victory or this conquering of the Jerusalem as a celebration of the dynasty of the Roman Empire. It had a crippling effect on Jewish priesthood. The Sadducees, who've been such a feature in the time of Jesus, uh, become extinct at the end of this period. In fact, since Nero's suicide in AD 68, you then have in the Roman Empire four different emperors in the space of two years, which leaves N.T. Wright to comment on this. This moment in history, this was a shudder that shook the whole world. And so first century Jewish people would have, would have heard Jesus' prophecies in the light of what they're seeing in front of them. And it was like the world was shaking. It was like the world was coming to an end. They would have seen all of these signs that we've read, and they would have directly applied it to their own history. And that's really important to know, because, because when we ask the question, what did Jesus' prophecies mean? What did they mean? Essentially, what Jesus' prophecies did mean was, in your generation, there is change coming. In your generation, things will not stay the same. Though it may have been the same for centuries and thousands of years, there is a time coming now. He actually says later, and that's not wrong. Because they would have seen the fulfillment of this in the destruction of the temple and in the destruction of Jerusalem. What this means is, what Jesus is communicating is, change is coming. 
Tragedy is, in, is impending, and the temple and the city of God is going to be replaced. The temple of God, which is the place where God's presence dwells, would not be the place where God's presence would dwell. In fact, God's presence was already dwelling in another. The cornerstone that is speaking to them as they're looking at the ordinary stones of the temple. God's presence is then going to dwell not just in the one, but in the many, in the outpouring of Pentecost, and in God's presence being poured out upon all flesh. So what Jesus is really saying is, you're in for change. What Jesus is really saying is, I have come, in verse 31, to bring about my kingdom. He says in verse 31, the kingdom of God is near. That is the refrain of Luke. That is what he said at the very start of his ministry in Luke 4. I have come to proclaim the kingdom. He's doing exactly what he has always been doing throughout this book. And the reason for this change is what Mike and Eaton calls a foretaste of changing eras. What, what he's saying is that this passage contains a change for first century Jews, but actually it's like a trailer to the movie. It's like a foretaste, the starter meal that just makes you even more hungry for the main meal to come, right? It's, it's the first taste of what happens when you see the kingdom of God finally coming and the change that that causes to the people of God. You see, this passage, Luke 21, you can't just read asking the question, what did it mean? because then it becomes a redundant, boring history lesson. It's like, oh, that's interesting. That's what it meant. It's got to mean something more than just in the past. It's got to mean something for us now and something in the future, because Scripture is not redundant. Scripture is not a history lesson. Scripture is alive. It's living and breathing. Scripture is profitable for teaching, for encouragements, and for rebuke. Scripture is able to pierce through bone and marrow and get to the very heart. It's able to revive our souls. I don't know about you, but the last time I was in a history lesson, I didn't walk out thinking, my soul has been revived. I am so grateful, O historian. And, and so, although it is interesting and it's helpful to understand what Jesus was saying and how it affected their first century audience then, we can't just ask, what did it mean? We've got to ask, what will it mean? What will it mean? And so let's ask the question, what will it mean? Now, we're in December period, and I know that about 50% of your brain capacity is here in the room, and about 50% of your brain capacity is already on the holiday that is going to come, right? I understand that because metaphorically, I'm already in my beach shorts. I get it, like, okay? I'm already there, actually, in my mind, in my head, and in my heart, if I'm honest with you, right? Okay? And so, and so Francine's just commenting that it's beautiful. It is beautiful. Unfortunately, I don't think any of us are going to get there anytime soon. But that would be nice. If anyone wants to sponsor that, feel free, right? So, so this, is, this is what I do on holidays, right? If you can give me like one week and you're saying, Tom, like whatever you want to do to rest, relax, to feel recharged, to come back raring to go for a new year, I'm going to be there. And that's going to be my drink, okay? And, and I'm going to be swimming here, gazing there and falling asleep a lot, okay? That's, that's, that's what I'm going to be doing. What I really love to do at the end of the year in December is I love to take a few days to just reflect, to just think about the year, think about the ways that I've been challenged, to think about the ways that I've grown. I'm uh, this year going to write uh, uh, what's called a rule of life, which is stuff we're going to teach on at the beginning of next year, and uh, just contemplate what God is doing and saying and speaking to me right now. Okay? It's going to be full of tired, 
but hopeful reflections of the year. It's going to be full of faith at God. What do you want to do in 2024? I'm going to be reflecting deep and restfully. You know what I'm not going to be doing? I'm not going to be thinking about this scene, a different scene. I'm not going to be thinking about the apocalypse, David. I'm not going to be thinking about dystopian, nightmarish, everything on fire. How is the world going to end? What am I going to do if I see a tidal wave coming towards me? Am I going to try and save anyone or save anything or just get out? I'm not thinking about that. Why? I'm resting. I'm relaxing. I'm chilling, right? What I'm not doing is worrying about the end of the world. And yet, in Luke 21... Although there is a definite meaning for the audience then, you you cannot escape the imagery and the language that is used throughout this chapter about Jesus' second coming. And this is explicitly said in verse 25 onwards, but even before verse 25, there are so many hints that Jesus is talking about multiple things, not just one thing. He's not just talking about uh, the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD, but he's talking about something much greater. In verse 6, you have the destruction of the temple. In verse 8, you have uh, false messiahs and people being led astray by different leaders. You have the wars in 9 and 10. You have natural disasters, famines, pandemics. Sorry, that one's a bit too close to home for us. It's a couple of years too early still. Uh, Verse 12, you have intense persecution. In verse 16, you have betrayal and, and people, families turning against each other. In verse 20, you have the scattering of God's people. In verse 23, you have great distress and the wrath of God on people and even on creation. And then you read verse 25 onwards about the coming of the Son of Man. It's really clear that Jesus is, yes, talking about something that happened, but also about something that is still going to happen, something that is still waiting for us in our future. These different signs, these different things are very reminiscent of the plagues we've seen in Exodus, aren't they? They're they're very reminiscent of the kinds of things that the Israelites would have seen and would have remembered before as Jesus is speaking these words. Mike McKinley writes that these signs, foretelling signs, are not just uh, depictions of the Exodus uh, plagues, but they're also acts of decreation. What God is doing is he's decreating what he had created. He's decreating the old, the thing, the former the things that are to go. He created them for purpose, but there's going to come the fulfillment of that purpose. And at that point, he's going to decreate things. He's going to, through natural disasters, through relationships with people, there is a decreation at work here. This is, if you look at these signs, it feels like this is the world in uproar. Now, I've managed to go since April, the whole time, without one sermon illustration about Lavoyal. Like, like, not once have I used her, but I'm going to use her now, okay? No, I've been very self-controlled, but this, this is the best thing that I can do. When, when Lavoyo cries, the world stops, okay? When, when she cries, nothing else matters in the Moffat household, okay? When there's a piercing cry, not like, a, I want some milk now, or I'm trying to get to sleep now, but when there's like a problem, an issue, it's like... Alarm bells ring off in all of our heads. Like, everything must stop. The world, it doesn't matter what is going on. It doesn't matter if Liverpool's about to score a goal. 
And that's a very big thing for me to say, and you know that, okay? It doesn't matter what is happening, because that thing is the only thing that's actually really important right now. Like, this is like the, the whole world stops, okay? These signs, it's like, it's, it's like big blaring alarm lights that, that force you to stop. They force you to be like, what is going on? It's amazing that so many Christians would read Luke 21, think, this is really confusing. I'm just not going to bother ignoring the alarm bells that are going off here. You must be clear about what this is teaching, even if it's complicated. And so this feels like the world is giving alarm bells, symbols to, to something that is happening. You know what it feels like? It feels a little bit like what we read in Romans 8, when it says, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I don't know when your last experience of like crippling pain was. Hopefully it wasn't too recent. But uh, when you have that sense of pain invades your body in a way that everything else kind of leaves. Maybe you, you become unaware of your surroundings or your circumstances. You become unaware of where you're at. What, what's, go, what's predominant in your mind is, I'm in pain, right? That's what this passage feels like. It feels like the world is groaning with its own, what it says in other passages in Romans 8, that its own corruption to decay. It's bondage to decay in this world. It feels like there is this groaning. But it's interesting that Romans 8 says of childbirth, not of a death, not of a funeral, but of a birth of new life which actually we don't read in Luke, but we read in Matthew's account of this very passage. In Matthew's account of this very passage, in uh, Matthew 24, verse 8, he actually explicitly uses the phrase that these signs are the beginning of the birth pains. Beginning of the birth pains. So what's being born? What's, what, what's being created, right? If, if, if there are things that are being decreated, well, what is the new life that we are expecting to see and to come now? The new life is what we've already read in verse 31. The kingdom of God is drawing near. The kingdom of God is come. These are the things that are not yet. We're still in that age of the, of, the, of the childbearing pains. But there will come a day of new life. There will come a day when the Son of Man will come again. We've read that in verse 27 and 28. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things take place, straighten up and raise your heads for redemption is drawing near. Right? This is the second coming of Jesus. This is, this is uh, taking an image all the way in Daniel 7 and then putting it into the New Testament. This is Jesus saying what Daniel saw is going to happen. There is going to come a day when the Son of Man is going to come back. And he's going to come on the cloud. He's going to come with Shekinah glory wrapped around him. And he's going to come to wrap up all of the old, to decreate the old. He's come to bring a new heaven and a new earth. He's coming with loud shouts of victory victory and glory. Right now, it feels like we're, we're surrounded by some childbirth pains. We're, we're surrounded by some groanings, some longings. Where do you think the groanings came from? Where do you think the longings came from? From something that we clearly don't have yet. It's because we don't have it yet. It's because there is a promise still yet to be fulfilled. The kingdom of God is coming. So what will this mean? What will Jesus' prophecies mean? Well, I can't put it better than the words of Jonathan Edwards, who says, The grand finale of Jesus' preaching just before his crucifixion is this. 
that there is a sure hope for the future in God. The Son will return in glory. The kingdom is drawing near, and redemption is close at hand. This is what it will mean. Everything that you are putting your hope in right now, everything that gives you faith and hope that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, everything that you're banking on right now in the way that you form and shape your life according to the person of Jesus, all of it has a sure and certain future, which means it's not in vain. Your hope, your faith, you building and wrapping your life around Jesus is wrapping it around a guarantee of what will come. And so don't get distracted by the not yet. Focus on the it will come. Focus on the now and the yet to come, the sure hope we have in Jesus, which leads us to the what does it mean? What did it mean? What will it mean in the second coming? What does it mean for us now as we eagerly await? Well, there are a lot of things that we're told to do, surprisingly, in this prophecy of Jesus. We're told, number one, to not be afraid. You see, uh, in verse 26, when the Son of Man comes, there are people so scared, they are fainting with fear, and yet you and I are told so much earlier in verse 9, do not be terrified, do not be afraid. Number two, we're told to expect trouble. This is a promise of Jesus, not just here, but elsewhere in the Gospels, as you'll know. In verse 12, there's persecution. In verse 16, there's strife among families. It's really hard when you've been caught off guard by something. It's really hard when you've been blindsided by something. It would even perhaps lead you to doubting, Jesus, why didn't you see this thing coming? But he has seen it coming. He's given you forewarning that this is what will be experienced as we go on the road to him. We are to be sharing. We are to be partners with him in his suffering so we can be partners with him in his glory. Number three, you'll be equipped. You read this in verse 15 that he'll give you words to say when you are called to give an account to people. Perhaps it is to the kings and the governors of their age. Perhaps it's to your neighbor or to your colleague. But there is this promise in the midst of so much complexity. He will help you. He will equip you. He will empower you. The last time I checked, his promises are yes and amen in God. So he will equip us. Number four, he offers safety and he offers help. In verse 20 and 21, it's oh so practical in the what did it mean? He offered safety and help. He said, don't go into the temple. The temple's doomed for destruction. Go to the countryside. He's offering very practical help, which they did. In the first century, 70 AD, there was not a single person recorded still alive in the city. Everyone who escaped to the countryside was safe. Jesus gives very practical help, but he's also giving help elsewhere. In verse 18, there is this amazing phrase that even though in verse 16 he said that some of us may die, in verse 18 he says, your, the hairs of your head will be kept safe. Don't worry about it. <laughs> there's this promise of help. There's this promise of safety. There's this promise of he's got you and he will keep you. But I think that actually all of this is leading to the fifth thing. I think that all of these prophecies, why is Jesus saying any of this and all of this? I think he's getting to a point 
just before the plot to kill Jesus arrives, just before everything that happens in the crucifixion happens, the last big kind of statement that he says to help believers in Luke is this. Watch out. Be prepared. Stay alert. This seems to be the summary of all of the imperatives. And if you and I do watch out and stay alert, we'll be more aware of his help. We'll be more aware of his safety. We won't have reason to be fearful or afraid. So it seems like this is the summary thing that Jesus is coming for. You, you and I, we don't want to be found asleep at the wheel of our lives. That's fatal. We need to be wide awake and alert to what God is doing and what is happening around us. That why do you think he's told us this is what's going to happen around you? You need to be aware of what's happening around us. Scripture is really clear about being sober-minded, about being on your guard, about keeping watch over your life and your doctrine, about staying alert and awake. Throughout the New Testament, there are so many commands to be alert and alive and awake. And to be honest, as I've been reflecting a little bit on this, I've, I've just been feeling like, man, the thing that stops us from this is we get so absorbed by our own lives in this world. We get so absorbed into their day-to-day grind. We get so absorbed into the cares of this world. We get so absorbed in our to-do lists. We get so absorbed in so many things and ways that are going to take your eyes off the prize. They're going to take your eyes off the ball. I used to play tennis a lot as a kid. What used to happen is as, you, as the ball comes towards you, they would say, don't look at the court. Don't look at where you want to place the ball. You've got to focus on the ball. And, and what you need is to hit the sweet point on the racket. And there's a whole bunch of technical things there. But if you keep your eyes focused on the ball, you are far more likely to hit the sweet spot, which the ball is far more likely to go where you need it to go. You need to keep your eyes on the ball. That's what Jesus is saying here. Keep your eyes on the ball. Turn to the person next to you. You know what to say to them. What are you going to say? You're not doing it. I'm going to keep going until we do it. Turn around. Keep your eyes on the bull. I think we get so absorbed in our world, forgetting that we're not of the world. I know we're in the world. And I know that we've been sent into the world. That doesn't mean that I belong to the world. And that doesn't mean I should identify my life or equate my life or my living to the world. It feels like that would be forgetting that in Philippians 3, Paul says that I have a citizenship in heaven. It feels like I'm forgetting 1 Peter when he says in, in chapter 2 that I am an exile and a sojourner. I, I'm on the journey. I'm not at the destination yet. I, my destination isn't to linger forever in the world that's groaning in pain. My destination is in the kingdom that is to come still. And if I forget that, if I let other things take that out of my main focus and gaze, what will happen is I will invest more in my life, more in the world, more in my priorities, and I will take my eyes off of Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. I will take my eyes off of him who is calling me to be entirely shaped by him. Uh, we, we're living in this world of progressive and cascading busyness. We don't seem to be getting less busy. We just seem to be getting more and more busy. We, we're living in a world where there's just always more things to care about, more things to do, more things to try, more things to worry about. That's the world we're living in. And it seems to me at the very end of Luke 21 that Jesus' greatest threat 
to us, the thing that he says is the greatest danger to us is not the wars, it's not the famines, it's not the pestilence, it's not the persecution. It's us. We are the greatest threat to ourselves. Our sinful desire to live for ourselves is going to be the thing that's going to take our eyes off of Jesus. It's going to be the thing that makes us forget there is a kingdom to come, and I belong there, not here. And so Jesus' final phrase, before he goes into the Passion Week and the crucifixion, is a very, very simple and clear, keep a watch over yourselves. Watch out. Stay awake. Do not become lukewarm. Do not become too distracted. Do not become too busy. Do not become too dulled down by the world. Become a version of yourself that heeds the warnings of Jesus, that, that receives his help and his focus to live for the future, to live out of what will come. And I think that my prayer for us this morning as we finish with Jesus' final command to us is this, that, that the, the signs, all of these things that are shaking the world and have the potential to shake my life, that all of these things would fade away and they would not become a distraction. They would not produce a lukewarmness that rather they would be the watch out, they would be the alarm bells ringing, that what I really, really need is to keep myself centered on the person of Jesus and to keep my gaze on the kingdom that is still to come.